I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. On this week's edition, we travel to the classical music season of 2011 when International Associate Orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, travelled across the ocean to perform at the Barbican. It is true that New York City was just the, the perfect home for my father because it was it's probably the only entity on the planet that could keep up with him. It never goes to sleep. It just goes round the clock, just like my father used to. This edition not only focuses on this series, but also includes an exploration of the legacy of Leonard Bernstein, who was one of the most important conductors from 1958 to 1969, bringing the orchestra to the television screens of America and beyond. In 2011, under director Alan Gilbert, the New York Philharmonic presented four stunning concerts, each featuring music with a special connection to New York City. Highlights included Mahler's Ninth Symphony, concerts with Lang Lang and Joyce DiDonato, and a Young People's Concert. Writer and broadcaster Edward Seckerson caught up with Jamie Bernstein in the Bernstein family home in New York. So here I am with Jamie Bernstein in the, the Bernstein family apartment um, with lots of wonderful photographs and bits of memorabilia. And I've just seen a photograph of you, Jamie, age 10, crouched on a little box beneath your father's podium when he was preparing one of the young people's concerts. And I'm thinking to myself now, how early did you, A, understand what he did, and B, how soon were you at first hand exposed to his conducting? Well, I guess I was exposed to what he was doing from birth, but I didn't really understand what was going on very well until, probably not until he started doing the young people's concerts on television, because they were, in a sense, aimed directly at me. At the time, I was five. And I remember that first young people's concert. It was televised, okay. and it was 1957, and... I was very little, and there I was in my party dress and my little, you know, black patent leather party shoes, and I remember holding someone's hand and someone saying to me, watch out for the cables, because there were these gigantic black television cables snaking through Carnegie Hall. That's actually all I remember about the first (laughs) Young People's Concert. But 
I did uh, eventually grasp that my father was on television, and that was kind of a big deal. But then the moment when the penny really dropped was a few years later when the Flintstones were on television, and on one episode, Wilma and Betty were on their way to the Holly Rock Bowl to hear Leonard Bernstone conduct. (laughs) And that's when my brother and I realized our father had really hit the big time. Conscious uh, were you of the of music being a part of the household? Well, in our house, it was like water to a fish. It was just the the ground of being was the music that was around us all the time. Not just when my father was working, but also when people came over, my father would just naturally gravitate to the piano to play something that everybody was talking about. Or I remember later on when we had a library, it had a harpsichord in it. So inevitably, that was the, you know, at the cocktail hour before dinner when everybody was just sitting around and, and something might come up about a, a TV show jingle or, or an advertisement. My father would go to the harpsichord and, and play these silly little tunes on the harpsichord where they would sound ridiculous, you know. So in that sense, music was all around us all but the time. But that was too. what was so wonderful about him. I mean, he, he took kind of music from out of the air, wherever it was, really, and, and just enjoyed it, enjoyed the diversity of it. And uh, what was the music you were drawn to as a kid and as you were growing into a teenager? I mean, what, 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 what you know, rang your bell? Well, I was incredibly fortunate to be 11 years old when the Beatles hit the United States. I remember, you know, getting the next Beatles album and running home and barging into my father's studio and saying, look, look, it's out, it's out. And he'd say let's put it on right now. And we'd put the album on and sit down together on the couch with the album cover and read the liner notes and follow along with the lyrics. And he totally got it about what excellent songwriters they were. And when did classical music sort of, or or didn't it, come into your life at that time? Well, it was always there. And I never really thought about it. I was just by osmosis Mm. absorbing all this information about classical music just by attending my father's Young People's Concerts And, you know, because we talked about the Beatles and other pop music so much and listened to pop music on the radio all the time in the car, my father got in the habit of using pop music to illustrate the points he was talking about in his young people's concerts. And then, you know, he would go to the piano and sing And I Love Her in his terrible gravelly voice. And so uh, there, there was this very real sense of family life. And uh, he was a great dad. He was very warm and affectionate. And I I think I still have bruises from his bear hugs. Mm -hmm. But I mean, he really adored us. I don't think I ever felt unwelcome in his presence, even when I would barge into his studio and interrupt his work, which I think we all did a lot. Mm -hmm. But there was this sense that we were always Mm -hmm. welcome.
Let's talk a little bit about your, your dad and the, and the New York Philharmonic for a moment, because this was the musical family into which he grew at, as a musician, and it made him an overnight star, and it was, it was his musical foundation for so many years. I always think of Mahler when I think of your father, particularly because my introduction to Mahler came at the time when he was really introducing it to the world through those first New York Philharmonic concerts and recordings. Were you conscious of, of this extraordinary relationship between, I guess you've met many other players over the years? Uh, yes. Really, the New York Philharmonic was like part of my family. I, I really felt that they were, that we were all connected very essentially in a way my father had a paternal relationship with them. Mm-hmm. So in, in effect, they were my siblings, weren't they? And so yeah. I... You know, and we saw them all the time, not just for the young people's concerts, but at, when I got older and when my siblings got older, we went along on the tours with my father in the Philharmonic when they went to Europe and Israel and uh, Australia and Japan. And <laughs> there were all these amazing on-the-road adventures. So I have always felt very close to the New York Philharmonic. Mm. And I mentioned Marla just now. I mean, your father was um, a composer-conductor probably in that order, because I know how precious his music was to him and composition was to him. He, he once said, and I always remember this, he could always gauge how well a performance was going by the extent to which he felt he was composing the pieces he went along, whether it was Beethoven or Brahms or Mahler or whatever. I mean, do you remember him talking about that? Sure. Well, I mean, he almost channeled Mahler especially. He did talk about approaching the studying of his orchestral scores as if he were the composer himself. He would try to put himself in the mind of the composer to get a sense of why the composer you know, wrote the music the way that he did, mm-hmm. and that this was his way of sort of entering into the music. When it came to Mahler, of course, he had that extra relationship because uh, there, there were so many parallels between yes. Mahler's life and my father's, and and also uh, musical connections, because I think that Mahler's approach to composing was in many ways like my father's. They both wore their hearts on their sleeves. They were very emotional, sometimes almost bombastic, and very uh, aware of the the trouble and angst in the world, Mm. and, and somehow expressing that through music. So I think his connection to Mahler could not have been more profound. When he was composing, did he come and say, listen to this, what do you think of this? Did he share with the, with the family? Uh, he did later on when I was a teenager, not so much when I was little. No, um, because your feedback wouldn't have been as valuable then, I guess. Right. And <laughs> also because um, I think that when I was really little, he was still very much in the crisis of whether or not to write 12-tone music. You know, back then in the mid-20th century you could not be taken seriously as a so-called serious composer unless you wrote 12-tone music. And, and my father really 
set great store in the halls of Academe and would have been thrilled to be included in their pantheon, but they would not admit him in that glorious group because he refused to give up writing tunes. Of course, now we're all so glad that he stuck to his guns and and wrote all those beautiful melodies. Uh, And and I'm proud of him that he made that decision, even though it cost him at the time in terms of certain kinds of reputation. But anyway, so that was when I was really little. But then around the time he wrote Chichester Psalms, when I was about 12, that was the moment when he decided, you know... I don't care what people think. I'm just going to write what makes me feel good. And he wrote the Chichester Psalms on his sabbatical from the New York Philharmonic duties that year. And instead of writing this big, important piece, he wound up writing what he felt was a very modest and very warm and just for his own fun piece, which, of course, has become one of his most beloved pieces, as yes. often happens in this world. You know, yeah. when you're, when you're, least concerned with making an important impact, you will wind up mm. writing the thing that, that, that came out with ease and has the mm. most yumminess in it. So, exactly. And, and so, so spontaneous. At that age, I was very involved in, in his writing Chichester Psalms and heard a lot about it. And we all went over for the premiere at Chichester Cathedral. So that was a wonderful experience for me. That was the first time I really felt I had come up close and personal with mm. my father's process. <laughs> Philharmonic is an international associate with the Barbican and as part of their residency at the Barbican, you and Alan Gilbert, the, the orchestra's current music director, are including a young person's concert in their visit to London in February. It's a little postcard from New York, isn't it? The city was so important to your father as well and he wrote a number of love letters to it, including three of his Broadway shows, On the Town, Wonderful Town and of course West Side Story two of which are in the program. Tell us a little bit about what the thinking was behind it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yes, it is true that New York City was just the, the perfect home for my father because it was it's probably the only entity on the planet that could keep up with him. It never goes to sleep. It just goes round the clock, just like my father used to. And he loved it here. And I still live in New York and I love it myself. So I feel very connected to all these threads, my father and, and New York City and the New York Philharmonic. And it's such fun to, to knit them all together and, and present them at the Barbican. So in this show, there will be uh, excerpts from On the Town, uh, the dance music primarily, and also excerpts from uh, West Side Story. I think there's going to be a little something from West Side Story. Okay. And a few other things besides. But for myself, maybe the most fun element in the show for me is that uh, I will be in, in a rare public appearance singing wow. uh, one of the songs from On the Town that was cut from the show before it came oh, really? to Broadway. It's a blues number. It's called Ain't Got No Tears Left. And I think it's just hilarious and magical that I get to sing this song with a little jazz quartet consisting of four members of the New York Philharmonic, no less. <laughs> and uh, I, I can't take it seriously because I'm not really a professional singer, but it's such a treat to be able to sing this bluesy song with such an illustrious quartet. Speaking of jazz, from his symphony number no. two, Age of Anxiety, which again showed the importance of words, the influence of words on W.H. Auden in this case, you're doing a little section from the piece called Mask. Right, and that's the exact reason that I sing Ain't Got No Tears Left, because, because after the song was yes. cut from On the Town, my father recycled it and put it in a typical example of uh, breaking down barriers and... and crossing genres, he put it into his second symphony, Age of Anxiety, mm. and changed it around quite a bit, made it go faster, gave it a funny rhythm, and and uh, now it's the, the scherzo in this symphony, which is rather more like a piano concerto. So the scherzo is played on the piano, and it's uh, one of my absolutely favorite pieces of my dad's. It's extraordinary. It's really quite wacky and quirky, and has that quality that he often managed to to convey, and that is of music that was written down, sounding like it was being improvised in the moment. Exactly. That was his uh, amazing trick that he was able to pull off in uh, a lot of his music that had jazz elements. Certainly in West Side Story we hear it. And he has a piece called Prelude, Fugue and Riffs, which is for big band. And, you know, and the jazz purists sniff their noses at these examples of so-called jazz in the symphonic context because they say well it has no it has no improvisation in it therefore it is not jazz well they said that about gershwin's rhapsody in blue didn't yes they, they did <laughs> and they do and they were wrong <laughs> but it is but it is certainly true that that both gershwin and my father were capable of composing written down music that has all the spontaneity 
the same spontaneous quality as jazz improvisation. I think the dance music from On the Town is remarkable. And I think uh, the show was remarkable for having been the first Broadway show that actually had these written-in dance episodes. I think something like seven of them in the, in the piece as a whole. And they do convey all aspects of this town, you know, from the solitude to the kind of manic, busy rushing about. How are you going to introduce these things to the audience? I mean, are you taking your cue from the way your dad used to do it? Or is it very much you? Well... I think I'll just let everybody find out. But what I will say, I mean, I could talk about these, these dance pieces from On the Town all day long because I think they're so extraordinary. And one of the things that's amazing about them, and I might talk about this in the concert, is the way they are through composed in a very symphonic way. Just the way Beethoven took da-da-da-da and made that the motive from which he derived the entire first movement of his Fifth Symphony. Similarly... My father took the notes of New York, New York, and used those four notes to compose so much of this music, uh, particularly the Times Square episode. And it is really designed the way symphonies are designed. And I dare say that's the first time and uh, almost the only time that Broadway dance music was designed, was composed in this way. There is an Aaron Copeland piece in this program as well, isn't there, from his piece Music for a Great City. Well, definitely. Well, you can't go wrong putting Bernstein and Copeland on the same program because they were such great friends, for starters, and also because they, they have so much in common and they both lived in New York City and they both celebrated New York. What were your dad's foibles and, you know, what were the good things and the bad things and, my goodness... He celebrated youth. I mean, we're talking about young people and the way he, he made music happen for young people. He really hated getting old. How badly did that affect him? You're right. He hated getting old. And he really counted on his energy to get through everything. And as his energy, you know, dwindled as he got older, I think it just made him frantic. And he was an adult back in the second half of the 20th century when People depended a lot on pharmaceuticals, and doctors were, were very quick to prescribe uppers and downers, and my father was a chronic insomniac. And so for decades and decades in his adult life, he had been taking sleeping pills, and then that, of course, meant that he would be groggy in the morning, and then he needed uppers to wake him up so that he could go to a <laughs> rehearsal at 10 in the morning. And, you know, that takes a tremendous toll on your body. And all of that combined with my father's, you know, relentless smoking 
and a lot of drinking besides. I think that took an even bigger toll on his body mm. and he probably sh- shortened sh- his life. He should have been with us a whole lot longer. But he would have been thrilled, I think, don't you agree, Jamie, that so many of the pieces that he thought nobody was interested in are now performed all over the world. And pieces like Mass, which I know we've talked about many times before, has become a real cult piece with three or four recordings and performances all over the place. And I just think it's... And coming to the proms. Is it coming yes, to the proms? Next uh, fall. There's next summer, of, rather. There's a bit of exciting news. But, I mean, isn't it great that he... I guess somewhere he's, he's kind of feeling, well, I got there in the end. Yes. <laughs> I like to think that he's definitely having the last delighted laugh about it all. Um, it's a pity that he died before he could have seen Mass performed at the Vatican, given that the Catholic Church had such a little hissy fit about the piece when it first came out. And then in the end, it was requested by Pope John Paul II. So that, that would have been a tremendous, gratifying experience. But yeah, Because that piece celebrated everything he was. It was like, I always thought it was his most important piece. I, I agree with you that it had more of him in it than any other piece he ever wrote. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out.